Ram Castillo, welcome to Inside Out. Billy, thank you so much for having me, mate. Appreciate you. Oh, man, I'm so excited. All right, we're going to get going with this. What is the significance of this as you think back <laughs> in your childhood? And, and maybe describe what this is for those who are just listening in. So Billy's just held up a toilet paper roll, cardboard toilet paper roll. Um, that can be described as many different things, depending where you are. <laughs> <laughs> dunny paper, I believe, uh, down under, right? Yeah, that's right, right. <laughs> dunny paper, dunny roll, bog roll sometimes as well. <laughs> but uh, so the story behind that is I grew up not so well off, but even beyond that, my story be begins way before me. My parents are from the Philippines. My dad's one of 11. Mum's one of five. Uh, dad grew up with his father passing away when he was only three years old. And he would wake up at 4 a.m. and carry bags of rice on his head to help um, his mum uh, with the sort of local eatery wouldn't even call it a full-blown restaurant, but they would often even have only a tablespoon of peanut butter and, and bread to share for the day. And that's not to share and emphasize necessarily, you know, the, the feelings of sympathy that you might get from a story like that, but just the reality of their life. Like literally when people have a hard time uh, there, in our view, in their view, it's just survival. You just get on with it. So he used education as a tool to, quote unquote, sort of get out of that life as a way to build a better one. My mom, she grew up with a father that was never really around, like straight into it. He was quite abusive. He was a womanizer. He just wasn't there for, for his family. So pretty much uh, grew up, uh, my mom grew up with four other siblings, five of them in total with a single mom and she had, my grandma, she had a corner store selling cartons of milk divided into bags, just, you know, mm. none of this, a carton each, but the local neighborhood would get portions of that carton. Uh, and she would sew dresses and dress make out the back just to make ends meet. And so the heartbreaking thing as well is they did get the education. My dad got marine transportation degree and mechanical and engineering degrees, two degrees. We get to Australia, mm. I'm one year, a one-year-old baby. And none of those degrees are recognized in Australia. So mm. I'm from Sydney. And so I always think, gosh, I had a close shave there. I could have lived that life. I could have. Any one of us could have, to be fair, right? We don't choose where we're born or where we, you know, where we just begin our lives. Totally. So I'm always grateful of that. But the, the toilet paper roll was because I would collect empty tissue boxes, toilet paper rolls, cardboard material, and I would build robots, cities. Obviously, we didn't have iPads or anything back then. So I would just make stuff. And my mom, I remember one moment where we were in our little apartment. She's cooking spaghetti. And I can almost still remember the smell of it. And she said, Ram, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I would have been about five years old, a bit distracted with my toilet paper rolls. And um, <laughs> She's like, <laughs> stops cooking, comes to me, put, put her hand on my shoulder and says, she, she says, well, look, whatever you want to be, whatever you want to become, just make sure you dream big. Make sure you dream much, much bigger. Because I think I mumbled something like, I, I just want to make stuff, right? And here I am, mid-30s, have lived a life where 
I'm able to reverse engineer desired outcomes for people in the entrepreneurial and business space, having done so through the lens of being a designer primarily. So I ended up finishing graphic design, but even then it was tough because I didn't really, I didn't really know if we could afford to pursue that realistically, you know, dream big sure sounds good, but like we didn't really have much. And so I'll park it there, Billy, if you want me to unpack that that story with the uh, getting towards the 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 design life that I live now and uh, the business world because of that, more than welcome to. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I can't wait to explore all of that. Uh, your, your parents were super influential to you. And I love that part of your story. And I, it's almost like you're reading my notes because the next place I was going to go was your mom telling you to dream big. And that right there is so powerful. So as you think about the fact that she instilled this belief in you at a very young age to dream big, how is that playing out or has that played out in your life today? If you could think through and and really reflect about that being a, a pivotal moment in your life, an insightful moment that today you're, you know, you have, you've traveled the world, you're doing amazing things. How did that play a role in all of those things? Great question, Billy. Two things come to mind straight off the bat. The first is an interesting thing happens when someone believes in you, encourages you at such a young age. So I always ask myself, even, even now, what are, what are the thoughts and beliefs that have led you to behave the way you've been behaving? And through the power of hindsight and, and reflection, I often think, that I was enabled to be on a different baseline. Now, that's not to say that I was in particularly, you know, destined for this path or special in any way, because the second thing I was going to say was the immensity of our goals and dreams must be matched with the intensity of our actions. So sure, you can dream big, but you still have to move. You still have to, you still have right, to put in the, exactly. put in the work. So those two things, but Going back to the first thing, what my parents did was they didn't enforce or limit or put me in a in a box. The beautiful thing about saying something like that to dream big is to allow people to imagine a world that hasn't happened yet, to to imagine possibility. And I often think, uh, you know, and, and a lot of creative people talk about this where it's not that people are not born creative it's that they don't hold on to that creativity as we grow older Mm -hmm. And, and the reason why i emphasize creativity is because in a world so dire with critical challenges to resolve from sustainability to ethically diverse ethical and diverse businesses and anything from inclusion and diversity right through to you know creating equal opportunity like there's a gamut of problems that we can all solve and a key part of that is creativity and so i think that the the main thing is to be surrounded by people places and things that allow and enable you to not be afraid to fail not be afraid to try things, 
because I'll be honest, how it played out was anytime I had a crazy idea or anytime I wanted to try something, my mum would just go, go for it. Literally, she would be like, go for it. Like no sort of trying to pull me back. Not to say that I didn't know know the dangers because they made it clear that whatever path you choose, there's going to be consequences for that. Sure. But for example, right, like I would always draw on the wall. Literally, I would draw on the wall. Most parents would be like, no, stop that. What are you doing? My mom's like, (laughs) well, here's, here's a soapy bucket and towel to clean it up. But like you're responsible for what you do. It also played out in a couple ways. So you mentioned, you know, I, I travel a lot. I've, I've spoken around the world. I've written two books. I did two USA tours as part of that, uh, 22 cities in three months for each tour. And when I came back from my first tour, which was part of launching my first book, my mom picked me up at the airport with my, my dad and I hadn't seen them for three months. So they wanted to, to see me as well, I, I would imagine. <laughs> and uh, she said, how does it feel, Ram? How does it feel to climb up that mountain? Because I'd never done that before. No one in our yeah. family or generation ever has. And I looked at her and I said, feels pretty good, mom. And then <laughs> she said, well, make sure you come back down from that mountain and share to everyone what you found. Uh. And, you know, she has kept my head in the clouds, but reminded me to keep my feet on the ground. That is the power of those words that she said when she said, dream big and go for it. But it's certainly not without responsibility and action. It makes perfect sense. And I love the fact that she keeps you grounded while also empowering you to have unlimited thinking and believe in yourself, maybe even more than you would naturally. And what a great lesson as a parent that she taught you, that she modeled for you. So your childhood wasn't perfect. To your own admission, you you obviously, being the fact that you came here at one years old, uh, you also weren't the biggest guy. I'm a short guy too. Uh, you, you weren't the best student. You weren't necessarily the best athlete. You always loved art. And you did get bullied. So I want to talk about that for a moment. How did that influence who you are today? And the one thing I'll think I think of as I say that is the title of your podcast, Giant Thinkers. So I'm just I'm just curious if if that strikes a chord, if that's if that at all relates at all. But I'm curious, you know, what that being bullied as a child did to you now as you reflect as an adult. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought this up, Billy, because I'm certainly uh, an advocate for general well-being and not just that, but like keeping it super raw and real. And I'll put it this way. I was, I felt like when I was at home, I was safe and I was loved and I was, it, it was like Narnia for me, honestly. <laughs> like, but, but the thing is we didn't have much, but I didn't know we didn't have much because of the, of the enormous love and care that my parents gave me. And when I say that, I mean like, I didn't change my shoes because we couldn't afford to change it for, you know, every two, two and a half years. Whereas every year, most kids would get new shoes every year. And I would just wear them until literally it had holes in them and it was falling apart. But right. I, I, I didn't, it didn't bother me. 
um, when I was in primary school, I was the shortest in school and throughout high, throughout high school too, I was, I was the second shortest in high school, but I, generally I was never the most athletic. I was never the most, um, intelligent, never the most wealthy, never the most good looking, none of that, right? Always in the friend zone. Right. But in primary school, I actually got bullied quite severely. I, I had my arm broken three times and got 16 stitches before the age of 11. And people are like, what? And I was like, yeah, like that's the experience that I had. How has it affected me now? I believe that I will always be processing it. How I've responded to it, I feel has been positive to a point because we don't know the other paths that we didn't choose, number one. Sure. But I've also seen flashes of how I could have responded. I believe that my parents played a big part in that conscious decision-making. I now have felt that I have an awareness that allows me to be in touch with that consciousness. And so the questions that I've been asking myself when people say, wow, you've, you know, you've, you've done so much or, you, you know, you've, you've, I mean, my, my last role was head of digital design at Saatchi and Saatchi in, in Australia and, and working for AMX, Qantas, Toyota, like these were the dreams that I had. Uh, you know, I bought my first property at the age of 27. You know, these are the things that, again, my, my, my family, my, my ancestors would, could only never dream of. Like I, I broke away from what was possible, you know, starting businesses. Now I'm now an advisor to multiple businesses. I sit on the advisory board for companies. I'm, I own a lot of companies and, and invest. And it's like, what happened? And, and, and what it came down to was that at the beginning, it was suck eggs to the bullies, but now it's about impact. It's about meaningful dialogue. I wouldn't say it's exactly legacy. I don't think I'm there yet because I'll be honest with you. I, I don't. I feel like I'm still wanting to find out, you know, what that even means or how that could look like. But it all comes down to going down your own truth barrel. Really going down your own truth barrel. The and I'm talking about what is the expression of your gifts because everything that I've done and chosen, I felt was helping my younger self. And so when entrepreneurs think about what's the opportunity that I actually commit to, I think the question they need to ask is, what am I really looking to achieve? What does that actually look like? How do I know that I've achieved it? Because the question that I was asking myself was, well, why, why do you even exist? As big as that question sounds, and although I might not have the complete answer for that, what drives me is leading with generosity and following with care because I've had little and I've had a lot and I've had everything in between. And if, you know, a question I get a lot is, you know, what, what does success mean to you? I get that in Q&A all the time. What does success, how do you define success? And my, my working definition is actually quite simple and it comes down to this, how well I go to sleep at night because that's where I'm at. But I've had nights where, you know, I'm, I realized, 
you know, when I'm building up and climbing up the career ladder, I've realized climbing up this ladder of success, it, it could actually be leaning against the wrong wall. Mm. That's a bloody terrifying feeling. Um, so it's, so I think it's a transition though, you know, um, internal factors, external factors. It's a lot of inner work that goes into getting through trauma of any type, but I've, that's only just a little bit of it, you know, and I think, and I think that's the other thing. We don't really know the story of another. So if someone reads something like my bio, I often also, and I, I said something like this recently, uh, in pieces of my content, but it was around, um, I believe the, the level of success of a person of our perception of that level of success is certainly not just career or professional life, but values they hold, but the level of success of a person that we view as successful is in proportion to the number of difficult conversations they've had with others and with themselves and the tolerance and the patience and the resilience that they have. I mean, I could only imagine like, you know, your Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos of the world. But one of the things Jeff Bezos said that I love, he, he said in a, in a famous quote of his, if you really cannot tolerate criticism, then don't do anything new or interesting. <laughs> I love that. So, Yeah. <laughs> Well, man, I mean, look, your story is still being written. It's probably why you don't know the answer fully to the legacy question. I think you're still writing it. And your story, you started in the mailroom. So let's go back there, and then we're going to get into all the things that you're doing now. But let's start with the mailroom. What was the biggest lesson you learned there? All right, so (laughs) I I knew I wanted to do something in art only because my grades were, were shit everywhere else in every subject. <laughs> like, like, I mean, I, I tried, right? Like I, I, I'm a, I don't know if that's a word. I'm a trier. I try stuff. And, and like, even if I didn't, cause my parents, like, I didn't feel like I was like doing anything. Like I just enjoyed trying. And I'm talking like I was picked in the C grade, not even the B grade, the C grade of sports that I tried soccer, tennis, basketball, whatever, but I just like trying, right? But how this loops in to your question about the mailroom is the only thing that I really gravitated towards was art because that was the subject in school that I could exercise creativity and I did very well. And so my careers advisor already knew and tried to like encourage me to pursue graphic design because that was the only commercialized artistry that was available back then in sort of the realm that I was interested in. So come, you know, towards the end of high school, I had to consider where could I go, but I'm not the smartest kid in the room. So I was really not in pole position to get into design in universities that I wanted to go to. I'll just put it that way. So I applied for a whole bunch of scholarships there's one design school that I really wanted to go to the, like the top dog uh, at the time it was about $45,000. And this was back in 2003, right? We're talking 17 plus years ago. And um, I wanted to go there. 
I applied for a bunch of scholarships. Um, I couldn't afford to go there to the to the one that I really wanted to. Now that that's the the, the same degree is worth like ninety plus thousand. Um, so it was, but it was renowned. You know, it was like you know you want to go there. You, it was like right. you, you wanted to be with the best of the best kind of thing. And but my parents could not afford even a fraction of that. No way. Long and the short of it is, I ended up. I'll put it this way: we had grade 10 work experience and backtracking a bit and I ended up calling we had the white pages back then so we would like literally look at this thick book and I would uh we had to find our own place to to get work placement too but I knew I was like I want to go work at a design place whatever I tried like 99 different places and I was up to letter w and I was going to go to my careers advisor and I said um I have no luck I'm just putting me anywhere you know it's mandatory two-week work experience like put me anywhere no one wants me and he goes well where did you get up to i said let a w and he goes well i'll sit with you we'll make some more phone calls i call this one it said wingrove design i go hey did the whole script thing i'm like hey i'm from this school i'm in grade 10 i need work experience like as part of our curriculum we have to find a place and he's like cool he goes well you sound like you sound like a really good guy my name's ian and uh this is my studio and uh when do you need to start? I go, oh, it's pretty tight, like next week. Yeah. And he's like, he's like, yeah, cool, come on in. And I was like, wow, that was almost too easy, right? And then the careers advisor's like, see, what did I tell you? In my head, I'm like, yeah, sure, you're probably saying that. You, you would have said that no matter how far we went in. But um, <laughs> so I get to this place, uh, Wingrove Design, and um, it's beautiful. And there's like magazines on the on the coffee table, beautiful typography books. There's I'm 20 minutes early, eager beaver. And then this guy ends up coming in, drops his skateboard on the ground, on the floorboards, and then he's skating inside and then he makes his way towards me and he says, hey, you must be Ram. I said, I said, hey, uh, Ian. And he goes, he goes, yeah, yeah, this is my studio. He goes, welcome. And I'm like, freaking cool. This is cool. He was working on Sydney Olympics uh, branding. He was working on like Vogue cover shoots and he was working a whole bunch of stuff where I was like, wow, this is amazing. So cool. <laughs> and um so that, that happens. It's significant later. So then I just keep in touch with him once a year, so send him a message or an email. So I end up completing high school. I get a scholarship to study at a no-name brand college. Like it's not even known for offering design. I take it because I'm like, it's still qualification and, and they're paying for it. So I did that. And then I got a job in the mailroom. And then everyone was like, why are you taking a job in the mailroom? Like, you're better than that. And in my head, I'm like, no, actually, I think this is the best decision I could ever make. See, see, they were thinking of the transaction. I was thinking of the transformation of the long term. And in my head, I was like thinking of our other currencies. Mind you, I was getting like seriously low paid. Like I would get more by working at McDonald's, <laughs> put it that way. I would right, right, right. be the mailboy. Three, and in my head, but head, in my head, I was like, Hold on, three. I'll, I will meet 350 people in the first week over four levels. And, Everybody gets mail. Right, exactly. And, I, and this is at Ogilvy as well. So we're talking like this isn't just a small agency. This is one of the world's largest um, agencies in the world. And at the time, the Australian division anyway had everything from Coke to KFC to Amex to Dove to Telstra, which is the biggest um, mobile network platform here. Uh, anyway, all the big brands, all the big brands. Um, but I was in the mailroom 
I knew everyone's name. I would scrub the toilet if it needed to be done. I would change light bulbs. I would order printer toner. I would stack the fridges. I would, I'd be everyone's errand boy. And I was a fly on the wall. But here's the thing. I, because I was a fly on the wall, I was exposed to every single department. I was exposed to process. I was exposed to what good looks like. I was exposed to strategy. I was exposed to briefs. I was exposed to mentors. The list goes on with that. And so I was, I was at Ogilvy in the mailroom and that's how I, how I started out. And I worked my way through why I told you the Ian Wingrove story was because in my early years, so after that, um, I got poached by a smaller agency and that didn't last too long because they lost the Adidas account. But at that time, and that's when I was like worried, I get a call from Ian after like six or seven years and he says, Hey Ram, did you end up pursuing design? And you know, I know we we sent emails here and there through the years, but are you working now? What's the story? And I said, Wow, I'm actually transitioning at the moment. And yeah, I did finish design. And you know, here's my portfolio. It's not it's not glamorous or anything, but here's where I've got um, got gotten to since you you knew me as a 15 year old. Right. Since the beginning. It's the beginning. And then he's like, Come over. We've got a major pitch on. We'll pay you for the week, but if we get it. We're up against five other agencies, big ones. And if we get it, then we'll talk. I do it, work with him for the week. We win. We win the pitch. And I'm and then I end up staying with him for three years under his wing. And uh he was my number one mentor, um, still is today in many, many ways. He showed me what good looks like as a leader as uh, as a creative thinker and design thinking genius um, <laughs> and how how to be and how to hold space and how to you know just how to operate um, as a business owner as well so it's crazy how paths cross and how seeds we don't know how or when they will grow when they're planted so so true, man. And you know, life is full of moments like that where it's like sliding door moments. I was having this conversation earlier. It's like, if that one thing didn't happen, then what would the chain reaction be? And so a lot of chapters of your story have been written since then. Today, you're a human-centered designer. You're a decision-making coach. You're a creative strategist. You're a, a speaker. You're an author. You're passionate about mentorship. I, I bet you in no small part because of what Ian did for you. So I'm curious, and we're going to get into a lot of that. Let's first talk about design because one of the things you say, and I love this, you say design has allowed you to ask better questions. So how has the lens of design allowed you to ask better questions? I'll answer it in, in a few ways. The, the first thing is the shared vocabulary that we have of the word design traditionally skews towards the visual aspect because even when I say it now, I'm a designer, people assume that I am in the realm of either graphic design or like do you design uh, visual identities like logos? Are you into fashion design? Are you into landscape design? It's all it's skewed towards a visual reference, uh, and and they're right. anchored to that. Um, but 
to your question, um, how design has helped me ask better questions, um, and how design can any, how how that method of design thinking can help anyone does ask better questions is this design for me is reverse engineering a desired outcome because you are applying a process and that process is roughly in in this these sort of four buckets there's the the research component where we're information gathering because a key part of this is also never assuming hence mm -hmm. the asking better questions so there's the research and information gathering component the second layer is around the defining where we have every everything uh there all the the territories, the you know, think of this as even like an affinity map. Okay, we've got we've grouped these themes. Okay, we've gotten these research, we've gotten this data, we've got a whole array of sources there. Now, what are we actually wanting to do with this? Are we looking to solve a particular problem? If so, what? So then we define and we narrow down to the context and the 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 brief <laughs> in many ways. Then the third bucket is around the conceptualizing and designing part in many ways, an MVP. So again, you can apply this, sure, to business. You can design a whole business. You can go as macro as designing a whole life for yourself if you apply this process. Or you can go ahead and design a product or a thing. But that's the the the, the third bucket, which is the more of the conceptualizing, the designing, the MVP, the prototype, the what does a minimum version of this look like? And then the fourth is uh, distribute and deliver, deploy that into the world. And then you, you gather feedback again and you go back to the beginning. So there is this four-stage process and a lot of this in, in any design discipline is never assume you know anything actually oftentimes we have an unconscious bias when we make decisions and we don't ask enough questions and so mm. a lot of those titles that you, you listed there really stem back to one thing which is what does the world need that you can give it and whether you're a business or a brand you know and, and how that's played out for me has been the podcast or the writing or the speaking or the you know all of these things but it really comes down to asking more questions in order for you to ensure that you are solving the right problems for the right people or at least being informed by what's actually being said versus what we think is being said because there's a big difference between lived experience and observed experience. Mm -hmm. And this is the power of design. We're able to get hyper factual so that when we get the data, we analyze it, we synthesize it, we evaluate it, and then we arrive at key findings that's not subjective or at least as, as little subjectivity as possible. I think the, the key theme here is that we think and should think about design in terms of business outcomes. I interviewed Stephen Hoffman, who wrote an amazing book, uh, 
and I don't know if you know if you're familiar with him, but Make Elephants Fly. One of the things that stands out is how he highlights the importance of design. And so uh, my background, I worked for Tesla. I was leader of a of a fairly large uh, learning team within Tesla. So I, I trained all of the salespeople. So anyone that interacted with the customer, my team trained them. And fundamentally, if Elon didn't care to a, I mean, unbelievable level about the design, and I saw it happen time and time again because I got I got my start at Solar City, and so we were doing the solar roof shingles, uh, our tiles, and you know, first round of those came through, and Elon did not like them because of the design. And so what Stephen Hoffman says in his book is just like. If you're going to get a, a few players, make sure you get a rock star designer. It's just so key. And if you're going to study something in school, study design. And so I just, I think it's such an important thing. And having just interviewed Chris Doe and now interviewing you, design is on my mind. The other thing that's on my mind is mentorship, because I know that's something you're super passionate about. So I want to transition to that because I love your framework about how you should at least start the process of finding a mentor. You kind of related almost to like dating, right? You don't want to go all in and ask somebody to marry you. Instead, you say, ask for advice first. So that's one piece of your framework. I wonder if you could elaborate on that and then just give the rest of the framework for how you think, because I mean, you've written a book about this, man. So how do you think others should go about finding mentors that will be best suited to help them on their journey? Yeah, and uh, it's funny because I included that a little bit in what I've just uh, shared with the with the Ian Wingrove story, and a lot of the content I'm holding my book up for those listening. But yeah, it's called How to Get a Mentor as a Designer, but applicable for anyone. Uh, because he, here's how I put it: Firstly, success leaves clues. A lot of the information that I wrote and have written in my two books, fundamentally just what I wish someone taught me. <laughs> right. <laughs> like who knew that mentorship was not like a uh, Harry Potter to Dumbledore or Frodo <laughs> to whatever it is like Gandalf, who knew that right. it wasn't that, right, that right, this right. it was this lifelong thing. I didn't know. I thought it was. I thought it was one mentor, Billy. One. It's not that at all. So, all right. So here, here's the thing. I think that there are experts out there who have done what we ultimately want to do because it's also important to understand that it's not necessarily that these people are more gifted or talented than us in a particular area of interest. It's just that they've played that game before over and over again and hence why we can be mentors to someone else in a particular area but mentors in a particular area of expertise they're conditioned and oftentimes we forget that these people that we praise in public have spent years and years practicing their craft in private and navigating our way in professional life personal life whatever it it, it can leave us feeling lost, disappointed and drained, but it doesn't have to be that way because we can lessen the wrong turns because others has, have already done that. So for me, a mentor is someone that constructively guides, actively participates in supportive dialogue and becomes a role model to a person less experienced, particularly in an area of 
personal or professional development. So they, they act as a, as an advisor, they act as a friend, but they also act as a, an idol in many ways, someone that's proven to have done that thing. So I'll give four, four tips basically. Uh, firstly, you know, we need to get clear on the definition of what uh, mentorship really is. So like I said, it's rarely this lifelong partnership thing. I think that that's romanticized. So in my mind, the key thing is that you can have 10, 20, 40 mentors if you want, because a mentor interaction is simply those three aspects, the advice giving slash the coaching piece, the friend who, you know, really knows that you you feel that they're not after any ulterior motives, but then they've got proven knowledge. And so there's an interaction there because the reality is like reading a book, watching YouTube video, it's a one-way street. The power of mentorship is also in the dialogue. So the first thing is get clear that it can be a conversation as little as 10, 15 minutes. So that's what I want people to understand. The second tip is around going through a personal analysis because if you don't know who you are, so literally ask yourself, you know, who am I? What do I want? Why do I want it? What's stopping me from getting it? This is the foundation starting point for any endeavor, regardless of mentorship. But the beauty about doing this is when you go, right, I want to get into coding or design, or I want to buy a house in my 20s and, and invest I mean, I had all these goals, right? But because I was so clear in articulating them, I was then able to pair, which is my third tip. You got to pair your goals with the right mentors. Mm. It's not a gamble. And this is where I think people get wrong when they look for mentors or anyone to help them. They don't actually strategically pair. And I'm, I'm talking this, like, if you've never seen, like me, when I was I started at Woolworths, which is a grocery company, I was sure. a checkout operator, right? In Australia, I was 14, nine months <laughs> is when you can get your first job. 14, nine months, <laughs> I was scanning. Wow. And I was, I, I thought to myself, whoa, I've got $80 this week. I never saw that. I never saw $80 when I was a teenager until I worked at Woolies. I started, I, I, I got five, I was like, I'm going to get $500. I'm going to save up for my own guitar amp. I played a lot of guitar back then. I played in a band. So I was like, that was my goal. But the same yeah. thing, the same thing applies. If you've never seen $10,000 in your bank account ever, find someone who has and ask them, how did you do it in whatever age that you're in, let's say you're 18 and you've never seen $10,000. Seriously, go ask someone who has. And you're going to get so much insight and um, that's important. And then I guess the fourth thing is understanding that. So number one was get clear on the definition. Go th- Number two, go through a personal analysis. Number three is pair your goals with the right people. And I guess number four would be around making sure that you are giving back and that you also are mentoring others. Um, Because I tell you now, it's not an age thing. My 15-year-old cousin is like an insane coder. And he just, he goes, yeah, I made this thing that you wanted to to fix. And I'm like, how did you even do that? (laughs) (laughs) So we can learn a lot from each other. But yeah, there's certainly an importance of giving back. But um, 
if you want that, like a 12 step guide, uh, which is available in paperback, ebook, and audio, uh, I've written that for you and it outlines everything. It's, it's how I got to people, even like Kelly Slater, who has been on my show, the methods that I even get to reach these people from Olympians to gold medalists to Shark Tank, Kevin O'Leary, he, he contacted me to interview him on my podcast, right? It's, it's all in here. It's, it's this, it's, there's a method to it, uh, but it is a lot like dating, as you said, Billy, like yeah. it's a process. Yeah, man. I mean, look, if you have this illusion that there's one mentor for your entire life that will help you with everything you want to do, chances are they don't know how to be a mentor for everything you want to do one. And then two, to your point, it starts with asking for advice and that may lead to it being a mentor and, and it may be a 10 minute conversation. The other thing that you do, which I really appreciate is, is you help people get unstuck. And the way you do this is by helping them with their decision-making because you feel, and I agree with this, that most people get stuck as a result of their inability to make a decision. So can you talk a little bit about this? Yeah. So I've got a framework and you can go on ramcastillo.com and I've got a framework. You can go to ramcastillo.com because I found that as I now transition to coaching advisory work and consulting work, that the, the success really comes down to decision-making. Now I know that might seem vague. It's like, well, yeah, of course, this is make it so obvious, but really there's a few parts to this, which I found was like a pendulum swing on, on one end, there's options overload. There's literally too many options. So what does that mean? Well, then you are met with analysis paralysis that we all off all too often know how that feels like it's because you're stuck. So the stuck comes from, I don't know which to choose because there's too many options. Then there's the other end, which is I'm stuck because I don't even know where to start. I don't even know what my options even are. I don't even know what defines my decision-making compass, let alone what decisions I have. (laughs) And so there's different, there's this, there's stuck in, in those ways. So what I did was, um, and again, you can get this for literally, it's not even for free. It's literally, you don't even have to opt in or do anything. Just go on rankcastillo.com. I created a framework to help people with this. And I coached people through this as, as well as other frameworks that, that are involved, but it's called the lightning bolt method. And I want people to access empowered and informed rapid decision-making. So what we just said with the analysis paralysis piece, there's the options overload. And then there's also just prioritization challenges as well. It's a three Zen diagram thing, but it's just a three-step process, which is I feel a lot of people are not in a shortage of dreams and wishes mm-hmm. and goals. I think a lot of people do know what they want, to be fair. But it's not just about defining what you want. It's about interrogating the actual objective. Defining, I think a lot of us have done and can do. You don't need coaching through that. We want a lot of stuff. Let's just be honest. We want to achieve a lot of things. But the interrogation, so interrogate your objectives, basically comes down to what is the minimum viable intention? What is the intention? That the minimum version that that, that if met, you're, you you can you can move on to the next phase of your development or your or your journey. 
So interrogate it down to the minimum. Number two is the need to curate the criteria. How, what do I mean by that? Just comes down to one thing. What is your non-negotiables? Or what are your non-negotiables? What, what will you say hell yes to? What will you say no to? Again, it might be super simplistic, but you go literally go through this method. Because I'll tell you one thing. I'll give you an example. One thing that helped me is I realized, and I created a, a 10 minute a day rule. Everything that I wanted, I put 10 minutes on it. Because I realized that anything more than that, I'd cop out or I'd say some BS excuse. So again, what's your minimum? You, fitness, you want to learn something? I wanted to learn magic. Odd. I was just like, I don't know. It's cool. I want to learn some magic tricks. I, I decided I wanted to get healthier and fitter. I decided to, I want to learn a new language. I decided I want to read more books. Guess what? I applied 10 minutes a day on each of them because I interrogated my objectives and I went down to the criteria and my non-negotiables were 10 minutes a day. I'm happy to do 10 minutes a day. And guess what? The 10 minutes eventually turned into 30 minutes often or two hours. That's how I wrote my first book. People are like, how did you write your first book? I did it this method. So I've packaged this up. So the, the, the curate criteria is number two, which is what are your non-negotiables? The third is dismantle obstacles. And that basically means what is the root cause of this? And you know what you'll find? Sometimes it's all in our head. Sometimes oh, it's yeah, just 100%. <laughs> fear or anxiety. And sometimes we just need to sit with it and we need to have a hard conversation with ourselves. What is the root cause analysis? That's the third one, which is the dismantle. Pull it apart. Pull apart. What am I really fearing here? What is the real challenge here? That might even mean the mentor thing. You see, there's a formula to this. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. There's a formula to this. Has anyone ever felt this way? Well, go speak to someone. Don't do it alone. And so this is why I love helping people get unstuck in, in life, but predominantly focused in, in business because I'm taking all the learnings that I've gotten from all the big brands in my 16-year career and I'm giving all of that knowledge and, I'm, and I, I want to be the access for people to know about human-centered design thinking, customer experience design. How do I design my customer experience? Do you know this, Billy? Most people haven't asked this fundamental question, not most people, most business owners or aspiring entrepreneurs. How do I even acquire my customer? Where is my cash flow? What is my run rate? What is my projection? What is my validation of desirability, feasibility, all of that stuff? Doing the numbers, you know? So there's a lot there, but. <laughs> yeah, and the other thing, no, and I love it, man. And the other thing that people often don't do is distinguish between high value and low value activities. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how people can do this. And by the way, if you're serious about the magic thing and you're in LA, have you been to the magic castle I'm yet? No, but no. Okay. You're coming and I'm <laughs> taking you there. Okay. Dundee. I took my other, my, my, my mate from Melbourne there. So it's a, it's a tradition. So when you're in LA, let me know. Uh, I have a, I have a, a friend who has uh, the ability to get us in there and it's, it's a invite only. It's pretty Pretty exclusive, but it's a sweet place to go Sign watch magic. So that's side, <laughs> side note. But okay, so high value versus low value activities. What can we do to better identify which is which? All right. So effectively, it comes down to this. High value tasks are tasks that you only you can do. Now, if you're listening, 
oftentimes we are doing things that other people can do and we can delegate to, but we choose to do it anyway because we have a belief that if it's not done by you, then it's simply not going to be successful. It's not going to be good. Or it's not going to be something that is faster or better. Low value tasks is what are the tasks that you can pay someone or or delegate or 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 have someone else do? Because high value versus low is 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 something that I wish again was taught because the reality is a lot of the successful business owners and entrepreneurs that you see have a team behind it and you have to let go of doing it all on your own. The high value task is also this. If you are, if you are the entrepreneur slash business owner, then high value is actually building client relationships, building rapport and developing those relationships, nurturing them. It is about also nurturing your team and creating culture, a culture that's psychologically safe for people to perform. It's also about you showing what good looks like. It's also about you having a very clear vision and articulating that. Who's going to do that? Your senior designer? Oh, but they're senior. No, it's it's you. You have to understand that your value is in, a, in enabling people, in creating your vision to fruition. It's in business development for crying out loud, right? Mm. So there's, there, these are the high value tasks that I, I would advise for people who are stuck in going, I'm doing too much. Now there's processes and systems to support you on this. I mean, firstly, Google Eisenhower matrix. It's the good old urgent versus important oh. matrix. It's very, very common. That's great. Like start there, start there, number one. And literally, that's how I start my day. It's it's literally like brain dump onto a list and then I get post-its if it's out of control. And then I literally am going, do I do this now because it's urgent and important? Do I delegate it? Do I, there you go. Yeah, exactly right, Billy. Do you delegate, do delegate, do later schedule or delete? And here's the other thing. Ask yourself this, of my list, you know, Tim Ferriss has a version of this, which he calls the lead domino. What is the one thing that if done knocks a majority of your tasks as irrelevant or unnecessary or just like it, it knocks them all to be done easier? The way I phrase it is more so around like, will, if, if I don't do this task, will my business still exist? Mm. That's 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 a critical one. Um, there's 80-20 rule as well, Pareto's principle. What is the 20% of things that do 80% of the results? But then also Parkinson's law. And I want to ha- highlight Parkinson's law as a tool. Again, you can Google this stuff. This is all out there. But But again, this is just real practical stuff, which I like to live in practicality a lot. It's Parkinson's law is um, the notion or the concept that task achievement or the completion of a task rather expands and contracts to the time allocated to it so in short Mm -hmm. if you 
you know, we've all been high, you know, most of us have been to school. You get the, the two weeks to do the essay. Did you spend every <laughs> single day doing that essay? No. Yeah, you spent the night that. before. Yeah. If you're like me, maybe like, you know, the day off. I don't know. Like, you know, you, you totally. And so if you're in the office or if you've worked for someone else, I've been there where the deadline moved closer. And what did you do? How did your brain work? It does this funny thing where it just culls out the unnecessary stuff and it does the critical in your brain. It's just happening. So I'm telling you, if you have, if you've given yourself three days to do something, try doing it in a day, just try shift the deadline forward. And here's the thing, because a lot of this is linked with procrastination and, and how I define procrastination is this procrastination exists. If a choice exists, remove the choice down to one option. So these are a few things, high value versus low. It's all linked. I love it, man. Super practical. And to wrap up, I have one final question for you about fear. And what you say is fear is false constructs based on untested assumptions. Can you explain that insight? I think that'd be a great way to end. Okay. So a few things with that. And thanks for bringing that up. So for, for me, I've, I've found that and I think we can all relate to this. It's only scary until you've done it. And the beauty about what I've just shared to you about the design process is the test and iterate cycle. So I want you to apply that to your life. And I want people to understand that there's this thing called exposure and conditioning. <laughs> it's, it's, it's exposure therapy. The more you expose yourself to something, I often, I, yeah, I've even written this in my book and, and as a funny joke, because again, right, I wasn't the football jock, but I always thought, how are they so confident? They're, that, that, you know, I was in high school. I, could, I even have this memory of the football jock he, and he would be around like five girls and he would have all their attention. <laughs> and I'll be like, how's this guy doing that? But let's take it further. <laughs> you know, how does a stripper, right? A male stripper, let's say, hold himself and just be like, yeah, this is just another day in the office. I mean, I'll just be honest with you, right? Like it's because of the exposure and conditioning. And I think that there's something in that. And that's why when I say, you know, I don't, I don't know why I ended up w using that example, but the reality is whether you're pitching, whether you're speaking in front of an audience. <laughs> it's a good whether, example. Whether, whether, we're going all out here, Billy. No, but, um, <laughs> Let's end on male stripper. That's it. That's it. No, look, you know, whatever you want to do, it's, it only feels impossible until it's done. It's all that. You don't need me to get Tony Robbins on you. But like the fear is really just an untested assumption. In your mind, you feel that it's scary. It's always unknown. But here's the thing. When the pain, I think I am going to get Anthony Robbins on it. When the pain of remaining the same is greater than the pain of changing, that's when you know. So you got to go. Because you know, time is not renewable resource. And the time you spent pondering could have been the time you spent doing. It's all that stuff. But yeah, there you go. Well, the pain pleasure principle is real. And Ram, I'm so, so excited to have had this conversation with you. And for those that want more, because clearly you have so much to offer and, and thank you for sharing. I know ramcastillo.com as well as your books how to get a job as a designer guaranteed, how to get a mentor as a designer guaranteed, your podcast, Giant Thinkers. Of course, you're on all the social media platforms. I met you on Clubhouse. I listened to you and I was like, man, I have to have this guy on my show. 
but definitely go check out the Giant Thinkers, most of your social media handles. Where else can they go to find out some great things? I know you have some courses and some other things. Where else can they find all the goodness you put out into the universe? Yeah, I, I, well, the central hub would be ramcastillo.com, definitely. Giantthinkers.com as well, um, which is more the podcasting and and I've got the books. I mean, you can, depending on what you need, I've also got Creative Live courses. I've, I've got two courses on Creative Live, the world's largest online learning platform. One's called Create a Knockout Design Portfolio. The other one's called Get the Dream Design Job You Want. But yeah, like if you're after mentorship, just, you know, if, if you want more, more of that, you can just... You can grab the ebook on 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 uh, Amazon or, or paperback if you prefer. Audio is also available, but I really just want people to take action, and I want them to know that that they have the practical tools and frameworks. I don't want people to feel like it's only for the few, or because I, I I was that, and, and this is this is what I want. So uh, I want people to take action and to to stop living in their head and to start getting into into the action piece but connect with me on instagram because that that's where i connect with so many people uh it's fast it's easy and um i'd love to get a hello from you and and see where you are on your journey i love it well i want to give you the final word and i'm going to share a quote that will allow you to either expand upon it here it goes keep painting the world with your colors and remember where you came from Ooh, that brings me back, mate. That was uh, in a lonely, in a lonely period of my life where my mom sent me that text uh, during Christmas and New Year's Eve period, my first ever Christmas and New Year's Eve alone. And I was, uh, I was needing something and I didn't even ask for anything. I, I literally just sent my family a message just a typical merry christmas message and instead of saying merry christmas back my mom sent me that keep painting keep painting the world with your colors and remember where you came from it's for everyone really well keep will you keep doing what you're doing to paint the world your colors and and don't forget where you came from, Ram Castillo. Thank you for being on Inside Out. Thank you so much, Billy. That was amazing. Love you, mate. Cheers.